Well, our sermon text, as you've already heard, is Psalm 33. It's printed on the back of your bulletin in very small print due to the length of it, but uh, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Psalm 33. Give ear to the reading of God's Word this morning. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen As his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. And observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. You may be seated. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask God to bless his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word as a light to our feet, a lamp to our path, that we might know you rightly in Jesus Christ. We ask that you would give us grace by your spirit. Open our eyes. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things From your word, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this is one of those few psalms, uh, as far as we've gotten so far in the the Psalter here, uh, that there's no superscription at all. Most of the time it'll say even something as, as simple as of David, you know, something like that. There's no superscription at all. We don't know who wrote it. Uh, We don't know what the, the circumstance may have been behind it. Um, Writing of the Psalms of David, however, Charles Spurgeon uh, writes this, David's heart was more often out of tune than his harp. He begins many of his psalms sighing and ends them singing. Now again, we don't know if David wrote this one, but the same I think can be said of this psalm in particular, uh, not not just for David, but for us as well, that that the, the psalms, what do they do? In a sense, they tune our hearts back to where they should be. 
you know, if you, uh, I'm not a musician, but, uh, you know, Dan and others are, if you play guitar, maybe not so much piano, but guitar, you probably have to tune that thing a little bit every time you come up here and play it. It just seems to get out of tune. Well, our hearts are even more, more off-tuned than that very often. And the Psalms have a way in particular of tuning our hearts to sing God's grace, to use the phrase that uh, we sang from the first hymn this morning, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Well, we're going to see at least three things from our psalm this morning. We're going to see first the call for praise. The call for praise. Secondly, the cause for praise. Why, do we, why should we praise? What reasons do we have to praise God? And thirdly, uh, the confidence of praise. So the call for praise, the cause for praise, and the confidence of praise. First, in verses 1 through 3 in our psalm, is the call for praise. The psalmist calls us to praise the Lord. You know, really, the first three verses, and really the whole psalm, which is why I used it earlier in the service, is a call to worship, isn't it? It's a call to praise, it's a call to worship. In verses 1 through 3, the psalmist says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So think about all the things we're being called upon to do there. Shout for joy in the Lord. Praise him. Give thanks to the Lord. Make melody to him. Sing to him. Play skillfully. You know, twice in these first three verses, we're actually told to shout. Uh, that doesn't sound very Presbyterian, does it? To, uh, to shout. Uh, we don't even pray the Lord's Prayer very loudly. We're afraid we might uh, disrupt somebody. Maybe we need to re-examine and retune our notions of what a Presbyterian looks like if the Scripture tells us to shout for joy. Um, well, one of the first things these opening verses, I think, teach us in verses 1 through 3 is that praising the Lord very often does not come naturally to us. I don't know if that describes you, but it describes me very often. Ask yourself this one simple question. When was the last time that you said a phrase such as, praise the Lord? When was the last time you yelled it? Probably not very uh, recently, if you're anything like me. Uh, For some of us, it just doesn't come very naturally to make an expression like that. Or even in church on Sunday, are we mindful to praise the Lord in our worship? Are the praises of God on our lips? Are they in our conversations with one another? Are they in our prayers? You know, sometimes uh, I, I think that, you know, we have, we, we pray with the ACTS method here, that just the, the acronym ACTS, the first prayer in the service you really hear is adoration and confession, the A and the C. And the last prayer that Robin just let us in, uh, the T and the S, thanksgiving and supplication. Um, sometimes I think if we didn't follow that, not that it's a hard, fast rule, we'd skip the adoration part altogether. We'd jump right into, we might think to confess our sins. And we would certainly think to ask God for our requests. But the adoration part, I believe that's the hardest part. It's the part that comes least naturally, at least to me, maybe it does to you as well. Are the praises of our great God and Savior on your minds and in your hearts while we're singing his praises during worship? Uh, maybe you're not like me. I hope maybe you're not. Uh, very often, sometimes, 
It, it's like your mind goes to other things, even, especially if you know the song very well, which oftentimes we do. Sometimes we don't think about what we're singing and who we're singing to while we're singing. And if our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, as our catechism says in question one, then certainly one of the chief ways to attain that chief end is simply to give God praise. You glorify Him by glorifying Him, giving Him praise and honor. Sometimes you and I need to, as the psalmist does here, need to be instructed and reminded to praise our God and Savior. It should seem uh, intuitive to us, but it often is not. And surely the psalmist here in, in our psalm actually includes himself here. I don't believe the psalmist is, is lecturing us. Do, you, know, you should be more like me. I think he's including himself in that call. It's really a worldwide call, as we're going to see as we go later on in the psalm. And not only that, but there's a multitude of ways that verses 1 through 3 tells us that we're called upon to praise the Lord. Think of that list I just read a while ago. Shouting, praising, giving thanks. All those things he mentions, that teaches us how greatly the Lord is to be praised. How much we should and need to praise him. It's almost as if if you read verses 1 through 3, I got the feeling the psalmist was grasping for words. He couldn't find enough words to use to describe what he wants us to do, and he just kept piling them one on top of the other. He couldn't figure out how to quite describe what he wanted us to do. He even goes as far as to say in verse 1, it might sound like a strange thing for him to say to us, but praise befits, it's fitting, praise befits the upright. Praise is fitting. It's, to use the old uh, Wilbur Brimley commercial, it's the right thing to do, so called. It's the only reasonable expectation from anyone who is upright in the Lord is to praise God's name. It's fitting. And what else does that mean? It means that it's unbecoming of us as believers in Christ when we fail to praise the Lord. Praise is fitting. It's the thing that makes sense. Uh, We should consider it as something very strange and out of place when we aren't characterized by praising our Lord and Savior. We of all people should be full of joy. We should all of all people be full of praise. Praise should be a distinguishing characteristic of a Christian. You can say that about a lot of things. There's a lot of things that characterize us as believers, but praising our Savior is near the top of that list. It should be characteristic, a mark of a Christian. And that's because the righteous and upright that verse 1 speaks of, we really do have every reason to praise the Lord. Why is it fitting? Because we have so many reasons and causes for which to praise our Savior. And that brings us to our second point, which is the cause for praise. The cause for praise. The the psalmist spends most of his time on this topic in the psalm. He spends verses 4 through 19 in one way or another telling us one thing after another, uh, the cause, the reason that we have to praise our God and our Savior. He demonstrates for us not only that you and I are called to praise the Lord in a multitude of ways, but also that we're called to praise the Lord for a multitude of reasons as well. So if we find ourselves lacking in praise, which we often do, I often do, maybe you do as well, if we find ourselves lacking in praise, it's certainly not because we lack a right cause for praising the Lord. We have plenty of reasons to praise God if we would just think (coughs) upon them. 
So why are we to praise the Lord? What does the psalmist tell us in verses 4 through 19? He lists things, everything from the word of the Lord, which he mentions twice, verses 4 and 6, to God's works in verse 4, to God's steadfast love in verse 5, which he mentions three times in this psalm. He mentions his awesome power in in creation in verses 6 through 9, his sovereignty over all things, verses 10 to 11, his omniscience, his watchful care, verses 13 to 15, his power to save, most importantly to us, verses 16 through 19. All those things should lead us, if we think about them at all, to praise the Lord. The first thing the psalmist points out, it might, you know, if you were to think, if I were to ask you, what are some reasons to praise the Lord? I'm guessing the very first one the psalmist brings up probably wouldn't be the first one that we would think of, but maybe it should be. And that is, what does he mention in verse 4 there? He points out the word of the Lord. When he wants to give us a cause to praise God, the first thing that comes to his mind is the word of the Lord. He tells us that God's word is, quote, in verse 4, it's upright, it's upright, or it's true. The scriptures are a great gift from God. We should thank God for the Bible. We should praise him for giving us this book. And why is that? Well, first, because it's upright. It's true. It can be depended upon and trusted and leaned upon and rested in it. It's true and it's sure. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It's authoritative. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Psalm 119, 105. And most of all, it's because it's in the word of God that God himself reveals himself savingly to sinners. No scripture, no gospel. No scripture, no saving message. No sinners being made right with God. The next thing that he mentions as a cause for praise in our text isn't just the word of God, but it's similar. It's the character of God. The character of God himself is a reason for praise. Verse 5, he says, He, God, the Lord, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. He loves righteousness and justice. And the earth is full of his steadfast love. You know, the devil often tempts you and I to question God's character. Maybe that's, that's in a sense, that might be his number one thing. Certainly he tempts us to doubt God's word, but what does that do? Doubting God's word is doubting God's character. Doubting God at his word. Satan seeks to deceive us into thinking that God is somehow not fair, not just, not righteous, not good. But God is righteous. God is holy and God is just. In fact, the psalmist again tells us he loves righteousness. He isn't just righteous. He loves righteousness and justice. And surely we who are his redeemed people in Jesus Christ should aim to be like our Heavenly Father in that regard. We should love righteousness. We should love justice. We should be assured and know that unrighteousness and injustice greatly displease our Heavenly Father. Those things are displeasing to Him. Verse 5, the psalmist also says, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Now that's a That's one of those phrases and words in the Old Testament that when I see it or hear it, my ears tend to perk up. It's it's really the word for God's covenant love, his kesed in, in the Hebrew. It's God's covenant love, his unfailing, 
unbreakable love towards us in his son, in Jesus Christ. Now think about that. The psalmist is saying the earth is full of that. It's full of things that should remind us of his unbreakable love to us in Jesus Christ. You know, one of those things that we take for granted, we don't get much rain in town, uh, in this part of the country, but when it rains, very often we get to see a rainbow. Now the rainbow has been hijacked by some uh, groups that would deny the Lord, but, but what is that rainbow a testimony of, among other things? Primarily, the covenant faithfulness of our God. Every time you see one, that's what you should think of. That's what we should think of. God gave us something that beautiful to remind us of his faithfulness to us. The evidence of God's covenant love, his steadfast love towards us, the psalmist is saying, is literally everywhere. It's everywhere. If we have the eyes of faith to see it. That alone should be more than enough reason for us to praise our God and our Savior. What evidence does the psalmist point us to? He doesn't leave us to guess. He doesn't just say, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord, take my word for it. It, it just is. That's what we do as parents, right? It just is. Take, just take my word for it, I don't have time for this. Um, he actually gives us some, some things to point us to it. There are things in the rest of the psalm that he does up through verse 19 that, as a means of demonstrating what he's saying about the steadfast love of God. How do we know the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord? Well, exhibit A is God's work of creation. God's work of creation. Verses 6 through 9, he writes, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host, you know, the stars and everything. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. I mean, he starts the first thing as the first thing. What's the first thing you read of in your Bible? Creation. How did God create the heavens and the earth? He didn't even have to snap his fingers. He spoke, and whatever he said, there it was. He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, commanded, and it stood firm. That's, that's power. Consider the great and awesome power of the God we serve and love. He created all things simply by his word. The heavens and all their starry host were created by his word and the breath of his mouth. All the countless stars in the heavens that you see at night on a clear day were created by God with less than a snap of his fingers. He just spoke and there it was. The power of God in creation should lead all the earth, the psalmist says, to fear the Lord and all the inhabitants of the world should stand in awe of him. That's, that's an understatement. We don't have any idea on our best day the power that it took to create the heavens and the earth. Anybody who's a, maybe a science major uh, or in, you're in, into those things, sometime try to think about how many stars exist, how big one of those stars, just one of them is, how much power is in one star, how much power did God exert by speaking, how powerful is God? All the earth should be in fear of him. All the earth should fear the Lord. All the inhabitants of the world should stand in awe of God to say the least. The people of God 
even more so, should find great cause for praising the Lord in his power in creation. And you have evidence of that every single day. Every single day, the, te- the creation testifies that God is there. It testifies that God is there. And to you, if you're in, in Christ, it testifies to you of your Redeemer, the steadfast love of the God you serve. Exhibit B of the steadfast love of the Lord in the psalm here is God's sovereignty, his providence over all things. Verses 10 through 12, the psalmist says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Notice the big contrast the psalmist paints between the counsel and plans of the nations and the peoples and the counsel and plans of the Lord. There's day and night difference between those two things, to say the least. God rules over and overrules the counsel of the nations. He hinders or frustrates the plans of the peoples. What's he doing there? He shows them that he is God and they are not. They don't call the shots. They think they call the shots. They don't call the shots. God's the shot caller. God's the one who says what is and whose plans cannot be frustrated. God's plans stand forever. His counsel stands forever. Nothing and no one in all of creation can bring God's counsel to nothing or hinder him in any way. Nothing. Think Romans 8. God is so sovereign, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. In Daniel chapter 4, maybe you're familiar with that chapter where Nebuchadnezzar had to get a lesson. He had to learn this truth the hard way. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, made the most powerful man in the world eat eat grass like an ox, like a wild beast. And Nebuchadnezzar gives us his testimony about that afterward. In that same chapter, he tells us that he was... uh, that he blessed the Most High. God restored his right reason finally to him. His uh, discipline was for a time. Nebuchadnezzar's right reason was restored to him, and he too blessed the Most High when that happened. He praised and honored the Lord. That's what the text says. He praised and honored the Lord. And this is what he said. This is the word of Nebuchadnezzar. For his, God's, his dominion, not mine, right? That's, That's what he learned. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth, same kinds of phrases we're reading in Psalm 33, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven. What's he saying? God does what he wants with stars. With stars. What am I? God does what God wants. He says, and among the inhabitants of the earth as well. So God God does what he wants with the stars. Certainly God does what he wants with us. And then he says, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nobody hinders the purposes and plans of Almighty God. If you think about it, Daniel 4, verses 34 to 35, it's kind of a psalm of Nebuchadnezzar. It's not in our Psalter. Nebuchadnezzar sort of wrote a psalm, and it's in the Scripture for us. The most powerful man in the world at the time 
gave praise to the Almighty God. It's a praise, a psalm of praise to God for His sovereignty, for His rule over all things. Well, lastly, exhibit C, the psalmist gives us for the earth being filled with the steadfast love of the Lord, uh, and as a also as a cause for praise on that behalf is that God's watchful eye and His power to save is there. God's watchful eye, His power to save. Verses 13 to 19, He writes, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where He sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He sees everything. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The, the war horse is a false hope of salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those, whose hope, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. What's he saying? The Lord sees everything. That God who, by his infinite power, spoke the heavens and the earth into existence, sees everything. Nothing escapes his notice. None of us escapes his notice. He sees all the children of man. Verse 13. Though he sits enthroned in heaven, verse 14, he looks out upon all those who inhabit. That word inhabit is the same word for sit. The same word describing what God does in heaven. He's seated on his throne He views, he looks out upon all those who sit on the earth, who inhabit the earth. He knows all of our deeds. Even though he is, we think of him as far off, he's seated in heaven, he sees everything. Now that's a a great source of comfort if you're a believer in Christ, isn't it? It's a great source of comfort if you're in Christ by faith. But if you think about that, it's a terrifying thought, or it should be, for anyone who's still in their sins. God sees everything. God is watching everything. He knows even the thoughts of our heart. Which, which is that for you? Is God's watchfulness, his omniscience, the fact that he notices everything, is that a comfort for you? Or is it a scary thought? I trust that you turn to Christ if you have not already done so, that that would cease to be a frightening thought and start to be a comforting thought that he watches over you as your heavenly father in Christ and not just as your, your judge. Notice the psalmist, while giving us cause for praising God uh, due to God's steadfast love, also holds out that same steadfast love of God, of the Lord, to the wicked and unbelieving as a call to repentance of faith. This is an evangelistic psalm. Of all the psalms so far, this one is an evangelistic psalm. It is not a narrow-minded, narrow-focused, good thing we have this, everybody out there is in deep, deep trouble kind of psalm. Everything about this psalm says the opposite. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. It's not just talking about Israel there. This is not a psalm where Israel gets to say, lucky us, too bad for all them out there. Blessed is the nation doesn't say blessed is Israel. It says blessed is the nation, not just Israel, any nation whose God is the Lord. He also, in that evangelistic tone of the psalm, he warns us 
against putting our hopes in a false salvation, doesn't he? He warns us against doing it. He puts the power of God there in front of us in creation and everything else. And then he says that we shouldn't put our trust in a false hope of salvation. Verse 17. Not even a king, not a warrior is saved by his own army or his strength. Verse 16. Salvation is not to be found in ourselves. Not even if you're a king. Not even if you're a great warrior. It's, it's the, same, the same word used when it talked of, of uh, David's mighty men of valor, the Gibberim. It's the same word there. It's the, it's the, the seals, you know, seal team six, whatever your picture of a mighty warrior is. It's not just the foot soldier. It's, it's the special ops guy. He's not saved by his mighty strength. And the king isn't saved by his army. Salvation is only found in the Lord. It is only found by hoping or trusting in his steadfast love in Jesus Christ. And so for those who fear the Lord and hope in his steadfast love, it's those who can be sure that the eye of the Lord is upon you. He watches over you to deliver your soul from death. Who is it that protects you and watches over you as a Christian? The one who spoke and everything came into existence. The one to whom no one can stay his hand, as Nebuchadnezzar says. You know, we're going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper here in a little while. Uh, In a sense, God's given us an extra testimony to his steadfast love in Christ. He's given us an extra testimony that you can touch with your hands, taste with your mouth, uh, of, of, of the love of God for sinners at the cross of Christ. Of anything else, this is a cause for praise. And we're going to have a chance to sing a song at the end after we partake of the supper. Well, the third thing, the confidence, the confidence of praise is found in the last three verses of the psalm, verses 20 to 22. uh, There it says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope And you look at the effect of praising the Lord on the psalmist, even in the psalm. Look at the renewed confidence, the strengthening of his faith in his Savior and his God. When when you and I praise the Lord for his steadfast love to us in Christ, we learn to wait on the Lord, as verse 20 says. We learn to see him as our help and our shield. The more you praise your help and your shield, the more you realize how great that help and shield is because our help and shield is the Lord of glory himself. Our hearts become glad in him. Verse 21, the more that we praise him for his steadfast love to us in Christ. That's what rehearsing and praising the steadfast love of the Lord does for us. If you want practical results from praise, don't think of it in in those kinds of terms in a... a, a, um, what would you call it? A, just a practical thing. But, but it does have an effect. It's not just there as filler before the sermon. There's a reason that we are called to praise and bless our God and our Savior. He doesn't need anything. He's worthy of it all. But in a sense, you could say we need to praise our God and our Savior. And he is very pleased by it. So our praise in our worship should not just be for our own enjoyment. That should not be the standard by which we choose our songs, by which we, uh, those shouldn't be the kind of songs and things that we focus upon. They shouldn't be for our entertainment. 
Our praise is, is directed. Who is our praise directed to first and foremost? God. We're giving praise to Him. We're thanking Him. We're praising Him for His steadfast love. We praise God for Himself, for His glory, and for His pleasure first and foremost. Our praise should be focused on Him and the manifold evidence of His steadfast love towards us in Jesus Christ. The more you and I see and sing of the steadfast love of the Lord, the more you and I will grow in grace, and the more we will look to His steadfast love alone as our confidence, our hope, and our shield. And we'll say with the psalmist in verse 22, Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for psalms like this that remind us that, uh, that, that it's fitting uh, for the upright to praise you. That it's, it's the least we could do uh, and we ask that you would forgive us for the ways that we have, have uh, failed in that regard, but we ask that you would help us to do as the psalmist tells us to do, that we would dwell much and think much and pray much and praise you much for your steadfast love towards us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you care for sinful people like us so much that you sent your Son to live the perfect life in our place that we have not lived and to die the death that we deserve in our place, that we might be forgiven and accepted as righteous in your sight because of your Son's perfect righteousness given to us by faith. We ask that you would make us a people who are quick to praise you, especially for your steadfast love. And we ask that you would build us up in your grace when we do that. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.